Thanks for taking time this morning to join us as we worship. We're in a series in the book of Daniel. This is week 14 of Living in Babylon. And the theme this morning is a prayer of brokenness and repentance. We're in chapter 9. Daniel's going to pray. And uh, his prayer is really a model prayer of repentance. But before we get to that, I want to just kind of back us up and and get the big Google Earth 30,000-foot view again of not just Daniel, but the whole of Scripture, because the story of the Bible is really a story of contrasting worldviews. It's, uh, it's either God and His rule and His law and His righteousness, or it's this fallen world marred by sin. It's, it's sinful man in rebellion against his Maker. And those are the two realities uh, of, of biblical history. So biblically speaking, the story of the Bible, really all of human history, is, is a tale of two cities. And I don't mean the, the Dickens novel, though that's a great story. I mean that the city of God and the city of man. It's, it's a story about Jerusalem and Babylon, ultimately, figuratively speaking, right? They represent those two kingdoms, those two uh, entities in conflict. And as you think back over our journey through the book of Daniel, uh, remember that chapter 4 was the pinnacle of man's kingdom. We see this vision giving to, given to Nebuchadnezzar and, and the, the statue, and then later in 4, he's there, uh, the height of his glory, Nebuchadnezzar at the height of his arrogance. He's full of self-exaltation and self-reliance, and the operative word there is self. God warned him of impending judgment that was coming upon him, and and we know there in the text, he suffered seven uh, years. The, the scripture says seven times he suffered humiliation as a brute beast of the field, having lost everything, including his mind. And then God graciously restores him. So that's chapter four. And then, and then in chapter nine, where we are right now, this is about the desolation of Jerusalem due to God's people's pride, Israel's pride and their sin. You see, they, they were warned by Moses and the prophets that came after him, but they continued on in their sinfulness rather than humbling themselves and repenting to God. And it leads not to just seven times or seven years of judgment, but the scripture tells us 70 times, 70. And when this is dealt out, God says, then Jerusalem will be restored. And so it's in this context uh, for Daniel humbly seeking God in prayer here in this first part of chapter nine. And God's word speaks to this mindset that was in Daniel that had been seen before most clearly, I think, in the patriarch Abraham. Listen to what Hebrews says about Abraham as a precursor. Hebrews says in in chapter 11, that great uh, chapter on that hall of faith, right, Uh, that Abraham, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He didn't, he didn't know where that was going to be. And by faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of that same promise. For he was looking forward, this, this is the key verse here, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. See, th- that's what God loved so much about Abraham. His heart was set on the Lord. He was content to live and obey as God directed him here on earth because he knew something that most of us as American, even American Christians, have forgotten. 
he knew that this is not his home. This is not his final destination. There's a city, a new Jerusalem, right? And that's home. And so as uh, Daniel, many years later, shows us here, it's not really so much a matter of which city you live in as much as which city you live for. Really, that's the issue. So let's go to the text in Daniel chapter 9. We're going to read through uh, verses 1 through 19, and then we'll go back and unpack this together. So if you have your Bible, uh, paper Bible, good luck seeing that in this room. Um, if you have your mobile device, feel free to use it. If you have the Version Bible app, you can click on events and find my sermon notes there under Emmaus Road Church. So feel free to read along. Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the numbers of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas, for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you've driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against the rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us great calamity. For under the whole of heaven, there's not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy 
And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. What an incredibly powerful prayer. Let's go back to verses 1 through 3 and look at those again together. We know that in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, uh, he was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. So Darius is the king. The Medo-Persian Empire has taken power at this point over the Babylonian Empire. It's the first year of his reign. Daniel says, I perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of Jeremiah the prophet had to come to pass before the ending of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And so he says, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So it's plainly evident here, just from a cursory reading of the text, that Daniel believed that what the prophet Jeremiah had written was the word of God. And that the Bible that he had at that time was God's word. It was unfinished, obviously, at that point. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have a whole bunch of the Old Testament yet. But, but what they had was God's word to them at that time. But let's look, at, let's look at what Daniel read. This is the passage he's reading in Jeremiah 25. Listen to this. This is Jeremiah 25, verses 8 to 11. Therefore says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Now, this is, this is about 150 years before this happened. I'll sing for Nebuch- send for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, an everlasting desolation. And moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. The whole land shall be a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. There it is. Again, 160 plus years between the writing of Jeremiah's prophecy and Daniel reading this. And here he is, it's 70 years of exile. Just try to put yourself into Daniel's shoes as he's reading this. He's coming upon this prophecy, realizing that its resolution is imminent and soon about to happen. You can just kind of begin to imagine the kind of questions that he's he's asking, he's forming in his mind, like, what does this really mean? And and when when is this going to come to pass? How close are we? How can I help expedite this or participate in what God is doing here? And so so he does, I think the only reasonable thing that he can do in that moment, he, he stops and he seeks God in prayer. So I just stop and just go to the Lord. Remember that at this point, Daniel's lived almost 70 years in captivity. He's been there for the whole duration of the captivity. We don't know the exact amount of time, but he's clearly excited about this prophecy because he can see the finish line. It's in view. And this would make him between 82 and 87 years of age, having gone into captivity as a young teenager and having lived through almost all of these 70 years. So he's an old man now. He's, he sees the finish line. He's like, oh, well, Lord, how do I, what do I do? How do I, 
help? How do I participate? How do I engage? And, and, and he begins to pray. Verse 4, he says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O oh Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned. We've done wrong. We've acted wickedly. We've rebelled. We turned away. We turned aside from Your commandments and rules. We have not listened to Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings, princes, fathers, and to all the people of the land. To You, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us belongs open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, and those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which You've driven them because of the treachery that they committed against You. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we sinned against You. You chose Abraham to, to make a covenant and his descendants would be your covenant people. And, and we've just we've neglected that. We've not just neglected it. We've, we've rubbed, rubbed it in the dirt. We've, just, we've, we've sinned against you. There's a simple equation at play here in, in Daniel 9, though, as you, as you read through this. And I love this reality. You, just, you go, okay, Daniel's sitting there. He's got the scroll of Jeremiah. He's reading his Bible. And it just, the lights come on and go, okay, the more that the Word of God is in you, the more your prayers are aligned with God's will. The more that the Word of God gets in you, the more your prayers will be aligned with God's will. And Daniel acknowledges things that go back more than 70 years. They got them exiled in the first place. Now, at a personal, at a personal level, like I think the application here, don't make the mistake of thinking that the past stays in the past. See, God's transcendent. When it comes to time, which means he's not bound up by time like we are. We, time is a dimensionality that we are bound in. And so we age right, through time, and then we, and then we die. We can't time travel. Um, I've, I've tried to pray for that. Just can't. God never gives me. It's, it, some of you know about my adolescent Thundercat prayer, right? Lord, make me a Thundercat. It's, it's like the Thundercat prayer. He's just not going to answer that, right? Um, but God is transcendent when it comes to time. It means he's outside of time. And he's, he not only sees, but is in the past, in the present, and in the future completely at every moment. That's crazy to think about, but that's the reality of who God is. And so while you may just want to get on with life and get on with it and leave some sins, are there roots buried in your past? He's not about that because he's still there. And he's also at the place down the road where that's all going to come back to haunt you, Right? And so he's there, and he wants to deal with any and all sin in your life so that you can walk in the freedom and the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's just not going to relent. And Daniel acknowledges that his people did not listen to the Word of God as it came through the prophets. And, and this is the central issue that got them into all kinds of trouble. And I just stop and say, America is really no different at this moment in time, save that we've not been conquered by another nation and taken into exile. But don't think for one moment that that's not beyond the realm of possibility. America is not the promised land, and Americans are not God's chosen people. Now, has God blessed America? Yes, undoubtedly. The answer is yes. Has he poured out blessings on our land and on our people? Yes, I think the answer is undoubtedly yes. But Americans are not God's new covenant people. The church is. The church is. And the church transcends national boundaries. I just got to stop and tell you about a story that happened to me two days ago. I'm, I'm, I'm waited late in the week to start my sermon prep, which is always a dumb idea. And I, I'm sitting at my desk. I go downstairs, and I, I'm, I'm feeling motivated to start sermon prep. And I 
happen to have my YouTube tab pulled up, and there on the recommendation is this is a song that I just love these days called "The Blessing," and and is and it's, this particular video is by um, Joshua Aaron, who's an Israeli. He's a he's a completed Jew. He's a believer in Jesus, even though he's he's Jewish. And he sings this song. He didn't write it, but his version is just incredible. And it makes me weep every time I watch it. And, and as I'm right now, and as I'm, I'm just thinking about it, like it's like, oh. Um, and as I'm watching this in the, in the recommendate, you know, the recommended stuff on the right hand side, there's like the blessing, the blessing, the blessing, the blessing, the blessing. And they're all Zoom calls from different countries. There's the blessing Zimbabwe. I was like, what? And I click, watch them sing the blessing in their native languages. And then I watched Malaysia and then Korea and then Japan. And I just spent like an hour watching the blessing again and again in all these different languages. I was just overwhelmed. It's like the church is so much bigger than this room or this community or the United States. It's beautiful. For just a moment, there was... It was just watching my brothers and sisters from all these nations, tribes, and tongues singing the same song of praise and blessing again and again. And I'm like, this is what Revelation 5 is going to be like to be around the throne. It's incredible. By the way, that playlist is available on uh, on our YouTube channel. And on I, I posted the link on my Facebook page. So if you want to watch those, and you go home this afternoon and just watch them and just weep. Just worship and weep. And for just a moment, there's a taste of what awaits us in heaven before the throne as believers in Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus the Messiah will gather and worship him in spirit and in truth fully. Man, what an incredible, beautiful reality to look forward to. But, but the journey to the throne in worship begins in verse 8 with confession of sin. That's the beginning point of that journey. And now we can go on to verse 9. It says, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All of Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He's confirmed his words, which he spoke to us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us great calamity. For under the whole of heaven, there's not been any done, done anything like what's been done against Jerusalem, as it is written in the law of Moses. All this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself as at this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly. And so we watch this. Daniel goes back and forth from speaking to God in the second person, like to you, O God, to you, O Lord. They're speaking to him in the third person. He says, therefore, the Lord. And then he goes back to the second person. But talk about a prayer that is informed by the word of God. It is rooted in the word of God. Daniel would have known the Pentateuch. The, the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. He would have known Leviticus 26, verse 40 to 45, which says this in God's law, but if they confess their iniquity and confess the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they've committed against me and also walking contrary to me so that I walk contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, 
if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember my covenant with Isaac and I will remember my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. But that land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies in desolation without them. So that's one of the key issues here in the text is they weren't observing the Sabbath. They weren't giving the land the rest that it needed. Because they spurn my rules. When they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I'm the Lord their God. So I don't break covenants, right? But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. I don't lie. I don't stutter. <laughs> this is what I'm going to do. This is the plan. And this is what it looks like to think God's thoughts after him. Like Daniel's immersed in the word. His prayer is a prayer that's informed by and rooted in God's word. And in that, it's in that vein of thought, this passage in Leviticus and God's law, that Daniel continues this prayer now with a petition or, or a request. He says in verse 16, he says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O oh, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O oh God, for your own reputation, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God, because your city and your people who are called by your name. And Daniel could pray this prayer with passion and confidence because of his devotion to God and his word and his ways. And we know that as we read on in the, in the book of Jeremiah, remember that, that prophecy coming to the end of those 70 years, he's reading this. And we know as we, we read on in Jeremiah, uh, a few chapters later, that the prophecy that moved Daniel to prayer beyond that, we, we find these words that God had given to the prophet in advance. In Jeremiah 29, um, he, the Lord tells Jeremiah, these, these are the words that the, of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. So he sent this on to the exiles and to the priests and prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was written in advance. And this was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother and the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem and the craftsmen, the metal workers had all departed from Jerusalem. So all the, all the infrastructure was gone. All the uh, the, the economy was ruined. Um, this letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I can't believe I got through all those names. That was awesome. Um, build the house and build houses and live in them. This is what God says to his people who are in exile. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease 
but seek the welfare of the city to which I've sent you into exile and pray for the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Babylon goes downhill, you're in trouble. You're my people. He says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to their dreams with they, that they dream, for it's a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. And they're in a time of exile. It's like, guys, like, I'm, not, I'm not even talking to you right now. Don't listen to those guys. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Listen, that, voice, that, that verse is not for the United States. It's for the people of Israel in Babylonian captivity. Now, are there some principles there that we can take from that? Yes. But man, okay, soapbox. Sorry, keep going. Um, verse 12, then you will call to me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places that I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And it would be easy, I think, to wrongly deduce from a passage like this one that prayer is all about pleading with God to get him to change his will. Lord, just change your mind about what you've done. Just go back on what you've done, Lord. Could you just reverse? That's just not the case. It's not the case. We rightly speak of God being perfect. We're told in Romans 12, 2, that as we obey him and we offer our lives as living sacrifices, that we, uh, we discover his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So why, if his will is perfect, would the task of prayer be to seek to change it? Why would we seek to change the will of God? If his will is perfect, why would the task of prayer seek to change it? Instead, our prayers ought to be rooted in an understanding of what God's will is. And the only way we get there is by being in the Word of God. The single biggest time waster in Christendom today is praying about things that God's already said no to or that He's not going to do. We get caught up in praying for this thing, pleading. Like our most fervent prayers almost are always for things that God's not going to answer. He's like, no, no, I'm not going to give you that. You're going you're gonna to worship that thing. No. I can't tell you how many times I've had the conversation with young single Christians, and, and they're madly in love. It's, it's really Twitter-pated, right? They're just, I'm madly in love with this person who doesn't know Jesus. And I'll just sit down with them, and I'll open the Bible, and I'll show them where it says, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And then I get this response, but Pastor, I've, I've prayed about it, and I have a peace in my heart about this decision. And I say, bull poop. You wouldn't be seeking my endorsement as a pastor if you had peace about it. And this peace that you have, this feeling, is not a peace from God because God's made his will on this matter abundantly clear. You might feel good about this because you're infatuated with this person. That's not the same as God endorsing your sin. It's most assuredly not a peace from God. It's never right to pray for that which God has already said is wrong. It's a complete waste of time to ask God to endorse our sin. It's a time waster. And as for the application of this passage this morning, I want to just take us through four points here as we, as we take this prayer and kind of 
personalize it for us as 21st century American Christians. And I think for us as Christians, the first thing we got to take away here is that repentance is ongoing. It's an ongoing thing, right? I, I had this, this vague memory of this ad campaign this week in the, in the late 1980s, and I remembered that the tagline on this ad campaign was, love means never having to say you're sorry. And I, just, and I was a kid, and I was like, oh, that, that sounds good, right? And then I got married, and I'm like, that's the stupidest thing ever. All the married people in the room are just shaking their heads when I said that, right? They're snickering and nudging their spouse and going, <laughs> yeah, right. The love, love means never having to say you're sorry. I mean, what a, what a load of manure. Love means you, you're going to be saying you're sorry all the time because you're living with someone that you care for deeply and who cares for you deeply and sin and conflict and stupidity keep messing up the relationship. And, and, and love actually means that you're going to be likely saying, I'm sorry daily. Or if you're a thick-headed oaf like me, like two to three times an hour, like you're going to be saying, I'm sorry, a lot, a lot, a lot. If you love someone. And I think the same thing's true in our relationship with God. The Bible word for saying you're sorry to God is repentance. It means to turn away from sin. And we talk a lot about the importance of repentance in, in people coming to put their faith in Jesus because it's essential that we turn away from sin uh, as we turn to the Lord and embrace the gospel. But it doesn't stop after that. In fact, I would argue that for the Spirit-filled believer, the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you're repenting. Because He's showing you things that you just didn't see before. And it's deep stuff, down deep in your character. It's not the stuff at the surface that you started with when you came to Christ. It's deep stuff. Like family system stuff, like beliefs that you didn't know that you had stuff. And how gracious of God that he doesn't just, like, when you come to Christ, okay, so you're going to have to sit down. I'm going to strap you into the chair because I'm about to show you all your sins, past, present, and future. Like, you just die. You just die, right? How gracious of God that he doesn't do that at the onset of our relationship with him. But, but, but instead, he puts his spirit in us. And then he walks alongside us. And he's patient as he works holiness into our lives as we submit to him. And he continues to call us to repentance and he gives grace. And so every Christ follower ought to be familiar with repentance and experiencing it uh, pretty, pretty regularly. So, so there's the re repentance is ongoing. That's our first application. And then here's the second one. Uh, what about corporate repentance? Because here in Daniel's prayer, it seems to be an inescapable reality that Daniel's repenting not only for his own personal sins, but for the sins of his people Israel. The very sins that got them exiled to Babylon in the first place. So the question is, is this then an apologetic or a, a reasoned defense for the corporate repentance idea? Especially in our culture today, in the context of critical race theory and social justice, where we're being told as Christians and some of us as white people to repent for things that were done in the past when we weren't even alive. Is that legitimate? Is that legitimate? So as we answer this challenge, I, I want to acknowledge I'm grateful to Dr. Neil Shinvey uh, for his biblical insights on this issue. Um, so these are not my original thoughts. These are his thoughts. Uh, we do see collective sin and collective repentance in passages like Exodus 20, Exodus 34, Numbers 14, Ezra 9, here in Daniel 9. And some people will argue that because we see that in the context of a covenant people in relationship to God, that it applies to all people groups in, in their context. But um, what I would say is um, there, there are people, so the context for us is people today that are arguing that because whites have received unearned advantages 
they call white privilege, from historic injustices that, that white people are morally guilty and complicit in racism, even if we don't believe ourselves to be racist. And while there are several examples of a form of corporate repentance in the Bible, there are numerous explicit statements about the non-transferability of guilt from person to person, even as a particular example from child to parent or parent to child. So, so just listen to this, because God doesn't transfer guilt from one person to the other for their sin, right? So as, I'll give you Ezekiel 18 as an example of verses 14 to 20. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel says, Now suppose this man's fathers, this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father's done. So he grew up in a house watching this, this sinful father do all these sinful things. And then he grows up and does likewise. He's not going to die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, he will die for his iniquity. And then, and then he anticipates the objection here. And he says, yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is, why should the son suffer, having done what is just and right? He's been careful to observe all my statutes. He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die, God says. For the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, and the father doesn't suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And similar statements in Deuteronomy 24, Jeremiah 31, and on and on, especially all through the New Testament. So if if sin cannot be transmitted from parent to child, the guilt transmitted from child to parent, either, either direction, how much less can it be transmitted from my great-great-great-great-granddaddy to me? What, what about all these, like the child to parent, all, all these relationships, an individual person who has a racist thought is guilty of sin, but not on the same level as a, a man who would kidnap an African woman and chain her to the deck below below deck to the hull of a ship. Like that's a conflation. Right? I'm not guilty of that stuff that happened hundreds of years ago. So the, this whole thing's so convoluted. There's a clear conflation of sin here. There's a there's an application of sin where there, there hasn't been any personal sin necessarily. And so um, the math is really quite simple, I think, in the end. God holds you personally accountable for your sins and no one else's. That that, that seems to be the clear teaching of the Bible. And and so when we as the church do gather together to pray or to confess sin corporately, it's a lamenting for sin. It's a lamentation for the body of Christ. And it's only a confession of sin in as much as the sin is present in any one or, or more people in the room. Not necessarily. It's, it's a confession of sin among us, not sin in all of us. Does that make sense? Like if we got together this afternoon, had a prayer meeting, and we're just confessing any particular sin in this room, and that didn't apply to me or 80% of the people who are in that prayer gathering, we're still lamenting and confessing it, even though it's not in us. It's still among us. Does that make sense? And so that's what corporate is. It's among us. It's not necessarily in us. So it becomes a confession for the individual participating in that lament and confession only in so much as they have participated in the sin. And I just tell you, I'm, I'm willing to lament the sin of racism and the damage that it's done, but I'm unwilling to repent of racism because I have not committed that sin. And I, I don't like being told that I'm a racist when, just because I'm white. I'm like, that's actually racist. So uh, if, if you want to hear my story about growing up in the Deep South and seeing real racism up close and personal, ask me. I'm happy to share that with you. But, but here, Daniel is asking God to change a culture 
He's asking him to change the culture of his covenant people. And I think that's a right and good thing to ask God to do, to change the culture. And so we've, we've dealt with ongoing repentance. We've dealt with corporate confession. Uh, let's talk for a moment about how biblically grounded prayer magnifies God. This is our third application this morning. And I think there are two ways. We talk about magnifying something. We talk about two ways that a thing can be magnified. We can take a small thing, very small thing, and, and make it larger, bring it near with like with a microscope. That's one way to magnify. Or you can take a really, really, really large thing that's far away uh, and you bring it more close so that you get greater detail like with a telescope, with the moon or, or, or a planet. When we talk about magnifying God, we're not talking about the first kind of magnification. We're not taking a tiny thing. Um, we're, we're talking about something that's huge and big. He, God's not a small thing that must be magnified to be seen or understood. God's the biggest, greatest, most powerful being in the universe. And we're not focusing in on something small, but gaining clarity and detail regarding something huge. What we need is not a microscope like we're dissecting God. We need the Holy Spirit telescope that we can see the heavenly glory of, of our matchless God in greater detail up close, right? And so prayer is what does this. Prayer is the thing that does this. But even better than the most powerful telescopes that magnify the celestial bodies above us, um, prayer is the vessel by which we are transported to God and in God and with God, and, grant, and we gain intimacy in knowing God. So it's, it's, it's so much more than just observation. It's relationship. It's intimacy. And so here we are, we're, we're pouring out our hearts in prayers and petitions, making our requests known to God, worshiping and celebrating Him in our hearts. We're pleading for His grace to cover over our sins and to meet all of our needs according to His riches and glory. And we don't do it enough. We don't do it enough. And somebody's like, did, did Pastor just judge me? Did he just take a swing at my prayer life? Well, so the Word of God tells us, to pray without ceasing. Let me know when you've got that down. Let me know. In the meantime, we all press in to know Him more and experience intimacy with Him in and through the discipline of prayer so that our Son is at the proper place at the center of our solar system. And I don't mean S-U-N, I mean the S-O-N. And we, we orbit around Him. He is the center, not the other way around. And when we fully embrace that mindset, prayer moves us in relationship to Jesus. He's at the center. It's not something to check off your list of things to do this week. It's a way of life that leads us to constant and consistent conversation with our Lord Jesus. And that's the last point this morning is the constancy and the consistency of prayer. John writes, the Apostle John in 1 John 5, he says, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards Him. Listen, if we ask anything according to His will, He, he hears us. He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, guess what? We know that we have the request that we've asked of Him. You see the math? It just stacks up. If we ask anything according to God's will, we know that He hears us. And we know that if he hears us, then we have that thing that we've requested. He's given it to us. That's tremendous. Well, you see how biblically rooted and informed prayers dovetail with the will of God. This is an important reality. The passage doesn't say anything whatsoever you want. It says, 
if we ask according to his will. So how do we know his will? What's that about? Well, I'm glad you asked. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. The way that you live, your decisions every day, not just Sunday morning, not just showing up at church, but how you live, how you think, how you interact with the world around you is your spiritual worship. All of it is worship. It's crazy. It's not just, I love what Eric Little said in Chariots of Fire. He says, when I run, I feel the glory of God. I feel the favor of God. Who's doing what God made him to do, right? I love that. Whatever you're doing, Paul says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't let it shape you and inform your thinking and decisions. He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Hey, the only way you do that is to be in the word of God. You can't do that apart from God's word. He says, when you do that, you transform by the renewing of your mind, then you can test and discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You just grow in this understanding. If you want to know God's will concerning your life, a particular matter, uh, most of the people in the middle section, of the, it's like, who am I going to marry? When am I going to marry? That, all, every college student, every 20-something, like when they come to me and say, I, I just really want to know God's will for my life, what you're really saying is, when am I going to get married and to who? Right? And so it's like, if you want to know God's will for your life on a particular matter, it starts with obedience to whatever God has already shown you. What has he already said? What has he given you to steward? Are you being faithful with that thing? Why? He's revealed his word to you. God's not interested in revealing his will for your life so that you can consider it and think it over and see if it lines up with your best life now. He's not interested in that. It's not for your consideration. He's waiting on you to act in faith and take steps of obedience so that you can be trusted with more of what he longs to impart to you. But Jesus said to him who's faithful with little, more can be trusted, right? So we think about this discipline of prayer, this glorious reality of connecting with our God. And James says in verse 5, he says, is anybody in the church suffering? Well, they should pray. Let them pray. Anybody in the church cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayers of a righteous person has great power in its working. And then he, then he uses this example. He says, Elijah was a man just like us. The nature like ours. He prayed fervently. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore fruit. But he was a man just like us. But wasn't he like special? Didn't he have special powers? It's like, no, no, James is really particular. He was a man just like us. So as we wrap this up, I think about this James passage, and I can't shake what Daniel said in verse 3. I turn my face to the Lord, seeking him in prayer, pleased for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And then we just read in James 5 that the prayers of the righteous are powerful. I, I love the old King James here. It says, the fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. I just want to stand on the corner and shout that at somebody. Just Availeth much. It just sounds good, right? I wonder if we, as a church body, collectively, really 
have any idea of what it means to be in fervent prayer. I'm going to push you a little bit here at the end. Think back to the greatest personal crisis you've ever experienced in your life. How did you pray? If, if you prayed at all, if you were even a believer at that time. Was it, Lord, I have this need, but I, I know you're busy and I don't want to bother you and waste your time. If you, if you could just maybe do something to help, um, that'd be awesome. Thanks, sincerely me. Is that how you prayed in the middle of the biggest crisis of your life? I know it wasn't. Looking back there at my wife, I remember when we lost our third kid. And, I, and I'm thinking, that's not how I prayed. That's not how I prayed. It was fervent. It was passion. It was anguish. Fervent prayer lifted up to God with intensity. Bearing the weight of that circumstance, whatever it is, the heart aching for God's intervention, feeling every ounce of desperation in that hour of need, that's the kind of prayer that we have to have today, church. That's what we need. That's the heart of revival that will sweep our nation. And when the church is revived and we shake off the cloak of fear and complacency, then we will have a great awakening, but not until that happens. And so I just, I say the American church does not have the credibility to preach the gospel masked and huddled behind plexiglass. We don't, have the, we don't have the chops to do it. And it will not come to pass unless God's people get serious about prayer. We get fervent about prayer. That's my new favorite adjective, fervent. I want the reputation of Emmaus Road Church to be one where people say, we are fanatical and fervent about prayer just as much as we're committed to the preaching of God's Word. And you put those two things together, you put faithful preaching of God's Word and fervent prayer in the body of Christ together, I'm telling you, boy, things begin to happen. Time is short and the days are evil. And you see, God's called us to live lives of constant prayer, not as a heavy burden to weigh us down, but, but as a lightening of our load to lift off our burdens. It's not a burden. We speak of it like, like it's a discipline to be learned, but, but that discipline is no more burdensome than the discipline of like learning how to swim. When you learn how to swim, man, it takes time and practice. But think about the hot days we've had, being able to go down to the river or go down to the lake and just... Get in the water and not, not be afraid of the water. So get in and relax and enjoy it. It's the, the discipline that allows you the freedom to enjoy the thing. So much so prayer is much needed. Constant discipline, but it's, but it's also a great joy. It's an honor to have that lifeline to Jesus. And he's called us out of the world spiritually. We're to separate ourselves from the world spiritually, and we're still in it. We're still, we're still called to love the people who are, who are lost in this world. And someday soon, I think, Jesus is going to call us out of the world physically. But until he does, until he does, he's called us to be on mission with him in this world. And, he's, and to be successful on mission with Jesus, we have to strive to be faithful. You just take that word faithful and break it apart and say filled with faith, faith-filled, faithful. We've got to be filled with faith every day. And the building block that undergirds faithfulness every day in our lives is the building block of prayer. It's prayer, fervent, constant prayer. We must become a people of fervent, constant prayer. So as we wrap up this morning, I'm going to ask us to do something a little different and probably uncomfortable for some of you, but I delight in making you uncomfortable. So I want to invite you to pray aloud this morning. You're sitting there in your group, you got twos and threes, families together, friends together, kind of clumped, that's fine. Clump up there in your huddles. 
I'm going to give us uh, two or three uh, truths or thoughts that I want us to pray together out loud in those groups regarding that thing, giving voice to our prayers simultaneously. Just don't wait for your turn. Don't, don't sit there politely and wait for your turn. Every voice praying audibly. As you would normally speak, even if you're even if you're one of those, you're just like, this is the most embarrassing thing I've ever been asked to do. Well then just mumble. Just mumble. Don't let your nervousness or embarrassment keep you from this. Just see what it does to this room as we do this. We're gonna pray together. Okay? We're gonna pray together. Here's so I'm, I'm gonna pray for you, because clearly you need it. And you pray for me. <laughs> And then I'm going to lead us in in a couple of movements of prayer here, okay? Jesus, if we do this, I pray that you would just unleash your spirit to work in our hearts. Uh, We we would be open to you, to to hearing the murmuring prayers of the church and just being overwhelmed with your goodness and grace. Lead us in this moment, Lord, uh, we ask in your name. And so we, we just continue in this posture of prayer. And the first thing we want to focus in our prayer is, that, that God would cleanse and purify the church. He would purify his bride, that we might be ready for him to be used by him in whatever he calls us to. So just begin to pray right now that we cleanse and purify the church. Remove sin from our lives. Cleanse our lives that we might be an operating body for you. We just thank you for your Cleanse and purify your bride. Cleanse and purify your church. Wash away our sin. Cleanse our every walk of life. Be mighty. as you cleanse and purify your church, Lord Jesus, that we might be ready for you to be used of you. We also pray that you would help us to walk uprightly before you in holiness and in power. Pray for that right now. Holiness and power. Make us holy. Cleanse us relationally, Lord. Make us holy. Make us for each other. Help us to become more like you. And that we would walk in power. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've called us to walk uprightly before you in holiness and in power. And we know that holiness is the key to unlocking the power of the Spirit in our lives because if we're dabbling in sin, we can't be used mightily of you. 
And so, Lord, make us holy, not just positionally, but experientially, that we might walk in power of the Spirit. And then lastly, this morning, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be focused on mission, making you known to those down the block and around the world. Just pray that he would use us to, to bring the gospel to the lost. Jesus, your heart is for the nations. Your heart is towards the lost. Those that don't know you. Far be it for us, your people who have been saved by grace, to neglect the mission of the gospel. The Great Commission necessarily means that we have to share the gospel to make disciples. Far be it for us to withdraw from the mission or to huddle and neglect the mission, Lord, would you give us strength and courage in these days as we walk in holiness and power, Lord, that we would take the gospel to the lost. We'd be fearless. We would not fear rejection. We would fear that these people who are lost and dying would go into a Christless eternity. And we would fear their, their eternal death and destruction more than we fear our discomfort, Lord. We just plead with you to do this among us, Lord. And we love you and we worship you. We worship you in spirit and in truth, Lord. Thank you for your command to seek and save the lost. That was your heart in coming. And so, Lord, let it be our heart as we go forward from this place. And we ask these things in your matchless and mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Until God calls his church out of this world, he's called us to be on mission with him in the world and to be successful on mission with Jesus means that we've got to strive to be faithful, filled with faith. And the building block that undergirds faithfulness is fervent prayer. We've got to become a people of constant, fervent prayer. So make yourselves ready in the Spirit by staying constantly in God's Word and being fervent in prayer, walking before Him in holiness, operating in the power of the Spirit. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent.